Welcome to Live at the Ballpark. On this episode, you'll hear the story of a remarkable man who grew up in a family of sharecroppers. Didn't play organized baseball until he was in the 11th grade. He holds the all-time National League stolen base record and has over 3,000 career hits and is a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame. And then all of a sudden, Lou's hitting in the leadoff spot. And the next thing you know, he takes a walk, steals second, sacrifices third, and comes home on a, on a ground ball to the right side of the infield. I mean, and you just won nothing, and you haven't even hit the ball out of the infield yet. Welcome to Live at the Ballpark, sharing stories from players, managers, and coaches, writers, and broadcasters about their lives in baseball, from the sandlots to the big league ballparks. Hi, I'm John Frost, and my guest today is a longtime broadcaster for the St. Louis Cardinals and a good friend of Hall of Famer Lou Brock. It's Mike Claiborne. Hi, Mike. Hey, John. It's always good to visit with you. I hope you and everybody in your neck of the woods are safe and uh, dealing with the madness we call a pandemic. Yeah, how about that stuff, huh? Well, obviously, I, I want to talk about Lou Brock, and, and this is really going to be sort of a tribute to him. And I immediately thought of you because of your great stories about Lou Brock and your relationship with him. But before we get into that, I just want to ask how you're doing. I mean, this has been an unusual year to be a broadcaster for the St. Louis Cardinals or Major League Baseball. Kind of fill me in on you. Well, uh, I think the word is managing. You know, obviously things have changed dramatically from a broadcast standpoint. We do home games in our booth, and we also do road games Mm -hmm. from our booth. Now, our booth is the largest broadcast booth in sports in this country, in probably North America. So we can realistically sit four people across social distancing on the first row of our broadcast level. And then we have another level above that, And the only difference is a stair that cuts off what would be another seat. So theoretically, you know, we have as many as eight to 10 people watching the game from a broadcast position. And behind that, we have this massive card table, two cocktail tables, two tall tables, two couches, two refrigerators, a microwave and a sink. So basically, it's probably like the size of a studio apartment in New York, Mm. as far as its size is concerned. So for the road games, we have two 85-inch flat screens that we have. They brought in for us, and uh, one has the game itself, and the other screen is section where we have the high home camera, we have the scoreboard, and we have the look at both bullpens and the clock. So it's a pretty good setup, and you know we, we we're in sync with the TV carrier in that hometown, so you know we get the replays and everything else. But it's different. There's no question about it. And uh, we're trying to manage it for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. And, I mean, you know me long enough. I just show up looking to have a good time every day, yeah. no matter what I'm doing. And this doesn't change that approach. It's just a little bit more awkward. And, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. And that's the other thing. I could sit and grouse all day about <laughs> we should do this. And, we I, well, I can't do anything about it. Right. Okay. They, they didn't ask me what I thought. And if they did, I would tell them I don't know. So let's just go with your idea and we'll see where it takes us. So that's where I'm at right now. And, you know, I'm fortunate that I'm working with guys like Rooney and Ricky Horton. Jim Jackson's our engineer and, of course, Mike Shannon. And, you know, we've all known each other for at least 20 years. Well, heck, I think I've known all of them for 30. I think you have. So 
it's a good setup. I'm glad we're doing it, and I'm not looking forward to doing it next year. I like a little bit more normalcy, but who knows how things are going to unfold. But it's something I can add to my resume and tell my grandkids whenever my kids decide to have kids themselves. I wouldn't want to get used to it because I think some teams will say, well, you guys sound like you're right there, but we're not. Mm-hmm. And the best example is when we're in Wrigley Field, you know how the wind plays tricks there. You know, I was insistent upon them making sure we had a camera or some sort of idea if the wind was blowing out or not or blowing in and from what direction. And uh, they were pretty good about it because we're at the mercy of the home team's director. But I think these guys are all professional enough and understand what's in a good shot. So we've been pretty lucky on that. Front. I think we had one place that wasn't very good, but everyone else has been pretty good. Mm-hmm. I heard an interview with a major league umpire, and he was asked, what's been the strangest thing? What do you miss most about doing the games this way? And he gave an answer that I thought was interesting. He said, I miss the sound of the crowd. Yeah, you know what? You're right. I do, too. And I know they tried to pipe in some sound. And, it, you know, it just kind of like muffled. But on the other side of that coin, you actually can hear players talking. Yeah. You can actually hear things going. And, you know, the other night we had a little deal in, in uh, Milwaukee. Yep. And you could hear everything that was being said. And then, they, then the organist started playing louder just to drown out all the cuss words <laughs> that, that obviously were being said. So it does have an impact. And I think it has an impact on some players who are used to being motivated by the fans. And I'm sure umpires kind of get a kick out of it too. Uh, They're not as much in play as they used to be with respect to making calls because if they're not sure, they can always get a check with the replay. But yeah, the fans are missed. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about it. You know, in in some markets, they're more missed than others, you know, because in some markets, nobody was going anyway. But, you know, in St. Louis, you know, you're averaging 43, 44,000 a night. And, you know, that, that has an impact. Well, let's talk a little bit about Lou Brock. When I heard he passed away, you were one of the first people I thought of because of your friendship with him, for one thing, and because of the fact that you've been around Cardinal baseball for 30 years. And obviously, you know, he's been retired that amount of time. But the idea of you've been around him, you've been in fantasy camp with him, you've been to speaking engagements with what are your memories of when you think of Lou Brock? What do you think of? Just a wonderful man. And and I say that in a lot of different tones because he was an incredible baseball player. He was an exceptional athlete. Good teammate for sure. Real tough athlete, tough player. And we'll talk about that a little later. Yeah. Good father to his kids. You know, Lou Jr., who ended up having a pretty good career, played football at USC, was drafted in the first or third round by San Diego, uh, has a successful business in St. Louis now. But, but I don't think Lou ever met a stranger. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen Lou in a crowd, and you'd see a kid that – I kind of want to ask him for his autograph, but, you know, I'm not sure if I should or not. And remember, kids never saw Lou Brock play. Their parents or somebody, hey, go ask Lou Brock for his autograph. He's a Hall of Famer. So he's like, you know, kids are like, I don't even know this guy. I'm I'm already scared. And Lou would look at you and say something like, well, you know, I would really love to sign your piece of paper if you have a pen. You know, and he'd take the the pressure off of anybody, but he, he was such a, a wonderful person, very thoughtful, very smart. You know, Lou went to Southern University on a math scholarship. And I I call him the father of analytics Hmm. because Lou Brock, in his time, had calculated to the step on what it was going to take to steal a base. And Willie McGee tells the story that his first spring training, which was 1983, Lou Brock was kind of a guest base running instructor. So, you know, spring training, 
go out and run the bases a little bit. And here comes Lou with a tape measure, a clipboard, stopwatch, and two pencils. And he walks them through where the lead should be and how many steps it takes to get to second and when you should start your slide. And he had it broken down to an art. He had to say, and he said stealing third was different than stealing second. Mm. He always knew when a guy was going to throw over. He knew when a guy was going to go home. You know, he was one of the first guys to put a clock on a guy's delivery. He was one of the first guys to put a clock on the catcher's throw to second. So yeah, I, I used to call him that, and he used to laugh about it because I'm not sure if he knew what I was talking about when it came to analytics. Because an- analytics, as we know, has kind of taken over the game here in the last 10 years. But he was a very uh, observant person, too. Didn't miss anything. And I could go on and on about the things that made Lou Brock a special person, always impeccably dressed. Mm -hmm. You know, Lou Brock would be the best-dressed guy after changing the oil on his car. If we had eight (laughs) guys in the driveway and they were all changing the oil on their car, (laughs) Lou Brock would be the most impeccably dressed guy to cut the grass, to go to a formal event, he was always dressed to the nines, and I always remembered that. But he was a, just a fun person to be around. And he had a witty sense of humor, too. Mm-hmm. And always with a smile on his face. I never saw Lou have a bad day. Mm-hmm. He may have had one or two, but I, I didn't know about him. And I don't think many other people did. And I've asked, asked Mike Shannon about that. Mm-hmm. And I said, you ever see Lou, man? And he said once, and it was something that happened in the clubhouse. And he said, he said his piece. Everybody moved on. Mm-hmm. Never had that problem again. Mm-hmm. Uh, now he'd get mad on the, you know, if an umpire called him out, you know, something like that. But you know, he'd move on to the next page, go back out two innings later, steal another base, and all was forgotten. One of the things that people talk about when they talk about Lou Brock is the trade, the Ernie yeah. Rolio Lou Brock trade, considered one of the most lopsided trades in history. But in 1964, I hear that the St. Louis Cardinal players weren't exactly happy about the trade. Well, yeah, they traded away an 18-game winner yeah. in Ernie Brolio. Yeah. And Ernie Brolio was a pretty good pitcher. He had won 21 but, games in 1960. Exactly. So, you know, just like it is today, John, you know, good pitching is hard to find. And they knew of Brock, but, you know, Lou was a young guy who wasn't getting a lot of playing time in Chicago, and there were a few different reasons on why he was traded. So, you know, Brolio was one of the guys. He was one, And this was a veteran team, remember that. This was a team that had a lot of veterans on it. You had Boyer, you had Bob Skinner, you had uh, Bobby Shantz. You, you had a lot of guys who had a lot of experience. And so when you move one of their guys for a guy that they didn't know anything about, mm-hmm. he didn't look like them. So it was a little tension. And then all of a sudden, Lou was hitting in the leadoff spot. And the next thing you know, he, he takes a walk, steals second, sacrifices the third, and, and comes home on a, on a ground ball to the right side of the infield. I mean, and you just won nothing, and you haven't even hit the ball out of the infield yet. Mm-hmm. So once they saw that element, uh, everybody all of a sudden thought Lou Brock was a pretty good ball player, and it was almost like Ernie who? Because they had moved on, because they could win with Brock, and they knew it. And because the veterans on that team knew it, they got behind uh, Johnny Keene, and you know the rest was history. And you have to remember, this was a, a challenging time for the Cardinals because they had fired Solly Hemans. Mm-hmm who was a bad person, you know, he, he suggested to Bob Gibson he should stick with basketball. Mm. He put Bill White in the outfield, and Bill White almost got killed on the outfield running into a wall, and uh, he didn't have much use for Kurt Flood. Mm. So now you bring in Johnny King, who was a complete opposite individual, who was a very nice man. He was in the seminary at one point, mm-hmm. 
Uh, and everybody liked Johnny Keynes. Everybody looked around and said, okay, here we go. And so everything started with Lou. And his impact on the Cardinals for the World Series. Obviously, they made the World Series in 64. Oh. Well, here's the deal. You look at his records and the World Series play. You know, I know Reggie Jackson liked to claim the title Mr. October. Mm-hmm. Lou was Mr. October before Reggie Jackson set foot on the field. Mm-hmm. 391 average in postseason. He had four home runs. He stole 15 bases. I mean, his numbers, and it was only in 21 games. Now, you have to remember, you know, you only you, you played the World Series, and that was it. Yep. You didn't have the playoffs or the wild card or any of that. And all three of the World Series he was in, they played seven games. Mm-hmm. So he got the maximum out of it. And, uh, you know, he he was a big-time performer, man. He, you know, when the, when the stage was lit, Lou had no problem going out and doing his thing. He is the fourth highest on-base percentage all-time for the World Series. And get get this list. Lou Gehrig, Babe Ruth, Reggie Jackson, Lou Brock. I'll take them all. I couldn't pay for them. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't pay their salaries now, but I'd, I'd like to have them for at least a weekend mm-hmm. if I could. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty good company. And it's interesting about Lou. He had 3,000 hits. You know, he, he didn't hit 300. I know he wanted to hit 300. I think he ended up 293. Uh, he had some years toward the end of his career that brought his average down. But one of the things that people don't talk about as much, you know, Lou Brock hit one of the longest home runs in the history of the polo ground, and they still talk about the one he hit at Wrigley Field. I mean, he could hit for power. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a big man, but he was a strong man that uh, could hit for power, and he could do a lot of things. But I, I think, obviously, he made the decision he could help the ball club more by being a better hitter than a home run hitter, and hence you have 3,000 hits and 938 stolen bases, and, I mean, the, the, the list goes on and on, you know. And, and the one thing that I look at Lou Brock that I think stands out more than anything else, in the 2,000-plus games he played, I think he played over 26,000 innings. He had 12,000-plus at-bats. He never found himself on the injured list, mm. never on the disabled list. And I'll tell you a story that if there was ever a time he would have been on it, I'll tell you the story. I'm going to go back and kind of set the table. Mike Shannon and I were in Dusty Baker's office in spring training a few years ago. And we were just talking, you know, just shooting the breeze. And so he starts talking about his days with the Dodgers and the, and the uh, Braves. And so he said, hey, he went to Henry Aaron. He said, hey, who's the toughest picture you ever face he said oh, Koufax no doubt he was really he was a handful he said okay so then he gets traded he goes to the Dodgers so he goes to Koufax he says hey uh who's the toughest hitter you ever face he said well you know Henry Aaron's pretty good he said do you ever want to throw at somebody on purpose did you ever hit somebody on purpose and Mike's sitting in the corner and Mike just raised his hand he said I know the answer and Dusty looked at him he said who he said Brock and so Mike tells the story that Cardinals out in L.A. in 64, and Lou Brock is having a field day. I mean, he's running whenever he wanted to. Koufax was really upset about it, and he stole a base late in the ball game. Cardinals had blow, were blowing him out, and he didn't like it. So, you know, he's pitching the next day, and first person in the box was Lou Brock. First pitch outside for a ball. Second pitch hits him right in the back, right in the shoulder blade. And Brock doesn't come out of the game. He takes his base, promptly steals second. But they learned later they had a broken shoulder blade. And he played the last, I think, four to six weeks of the season with a broken shoulder blade. So Colfax 
tells Dusty the story about, yeah, I, I meant to hit him. And he said, and I felt bad about it every day after that. He said he was too good of a person, but I was just mad that day. And, and anybody who knows Koufax will tell you he's, he's the most mild-mannered person mm-hmm. there is. But that's how Luke could get under your skin. Mm-hmm. But think about that, John. You're a, a baseball player, and you're playing with a cracked shoulder blade. Mm. And I don't know if anybody's ever had one, but it's kind of hard to play anything, let alone baseball, with a cracked shoulder blade. Mm. So he was tough, man. And I just think when you look back and say, okay, 3,000 hits, 900 stolen bases. Yeah, but never found a day on the injured list, Mm -hmm. which I think is incredible. And you've seen enough baseball in your life, and we see guys now that go on the injured list for whatever Mm -hmm. uh, because this is a tough sport. Mm -hmm. And I think when you look at the game and how it's played, for guys to be able to do this every day is a challenge. Now, the physical pounding that Lou took is another reason why I think it's a fascinating feet on his part when you think about the stolen bases Mm -hmm. okay he stole 938 bases i think he attempted 1100 steals 1200 steals so that means he was sliding 1200 times Mm -hmm. so think about this and this is another where area where i I think lou is tough he was a guy when he first started to steal bases he went in hand first well, you know, in that era, guys would take the ball, they catch it, and they would slap tag you. So they, they wouldn't try and tag you in the hand. They'd try and slap you in the head with it. So you'd walk around with a cartoon up on your head from time to time because these guys were trying to hurt you. Well, Lou figured that out fairly quick, and he created what they call a pop-up slide. So he would go in feet first, but his momentum would lead him to pop up once, once he stopped at the base. And as he popped up, he would always lead with his shoulder. So if you're down low trying to make that tag and you're leaning out there with the ball, and if Lou gets there before the ball does, you're in bad shape because he's leading with his shoulder. And I'm sure he jarred a few teeth along the way, if not put a couple of guys in left field. Because as I mentioned, he was an extremely strong individual that didn't spare anybody on the base path. So his toughness, I think, is something that I would certainly – put at the top of the list as far as his, his physical accomplishments on the baseball field. Reislevin looks. He's going. The pitch is high. The throw is safe. He stole it. The throw got by the shortstop and Brock has done it. They would have thrown him out, but the shortstop couldn't handle the bad throw. And this is it, folks. Brock has now stolen 893. All of his teammates out of the dugout, onto the field, and all You know, some of the tributes that I heard at Lou Brock's funeral were just remarkable. Bob Kendrick, who's president of the Negro Leagues Museum, who was very good friends with Buck O'Neill, told about what Buck O'Neill, who, of course, signed Lou Brock. He signed Lou Brock, Ernie Banks, and Lee Arthur Smith, three Hall of Famers. Three Hall of Famers. Buck O'Neill talked about how he could see Brock's speed and his power, and he knew it was only a matter of time before he blossomed. Yeah, I think that you know, and Bing Devine saw the same thing. Mm-hmm. He just needed a chance. Now, the the story is one of the reasons why Brock was traded is the Chicago Cubs had too many African American players on the mm. team. You have to remember they had Williams, they had Banks, mm. Ferguson Jenkins came along a little later, and they had another guy. And I think they felt like four was too many. Mm. At least that's the story that's been circulated 
on one of the reasons why he was available in the trade. But, you know, for whatever reason, as you mentioned, one of the greatest trades in the history of baseball, if not sport, Mm -hmm. uh, when you get a situation like that. But, you know, he found a way. But, yeah, Buck O'Neill was a fascinating man who should by also be in the Hall of Fame. And I don't know why they haven't figured that out yet. Wonderful, wonderful storyteller. Oh, my goodness. Just Mm -hmm. just incredible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Bob Kendrick, who you mentioned. And, folks, if you you haven't been to the Negro League Museum in Kansas City, then shame on you because it's one of the most incredible – facilities that we have that that really houses the game of baseball on a level that you would not know about. And I'll give you two quick examples. Night baseball originated in Cincinnati in the 30s. The Negro League had baseball, night baseball in the 20s. They were five years ahead of Major League Baseball. Catching equipment was invented in the Negro League. I mean, and there's so many other elements about baseball as we see it today that was spawned in this particular league that if you don't have a chance to go over there, then you really are missing out on learning about how the game of baseball originated and the great contributors it had. And Buck O'Neill was such a wonderful ambassador for the museum. And Lou was quoted as saying, but even talking about Buck O'Neill, he said, but even greater, he shaped the character of young black men. He touched the heart of everyone who loved the game. And he gave us all a voice that we heard off and on the field. We were close to him. We will forever seek to walk in the shade of his shadow. That's Lou Brock talking about Buck O'Neill. Well, I'm going to tell you, there are three African-Americans, in my opinion, that have been the most substantial contributors to the game. Jackie Robinson, Buck O'Neill, Bill White. Mm. Doesn't necessarily have to be in that order. Bill would be third, but Buck had the demeanor if he saw a young black player who was struggling and wasn't sure about something, Buck had that ability to communicate with him and, and get him pointed in the right direction. Obviously, Jackie Robinson and his contribution on the field says all you need to know. And Bill White, during the Civil Rights era, was a player that had a lot of juice with regard to African-American players on how things should be. He was an outspoken guy. He was very elegant. And eloquent in, in how he made his cause, ended up being an outstanding broadcaster, ended up being the president of the National League when they had one. Now he's a Cardinal Hall of Famer now, but Bill White, those three guys had the most impact. And it was all about the fact that they were leaders and they led by example. You know, a lot of guys who never heard of those three people uh, who play this game, uh, and that's unfortunate, but those three guys had a huge impact on the game that we know today. One of the other things that was said at the eulogy was by Lou Brock's son, Lou Brock Jr. And he said, growing up in St. Louis as Lou Brock Jr. was a wonderful experience. Everyone says St. Louis is a great baseball town, and my father absolutely was a baseball guy. What is so amazing to me is how St. Louis's love for baseball has been honored with the likes of Jack Buck, Bob Gibson, Stan Musial, and all the wonderful guys. And to know my dad's name honors the city as well as Major League Baseball is a real gift. That's from Lou Brock Jr. Yeah, I, I read that, and it was, the, the words were so true. Lou was the sort of guy, and, you know, he'd be at the ball game, and they'd put a camera on him, and then all of a sudden you see his face on the scoreboard, and then you just hear Lou. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and think about this, John. Lou retired in the 70s. Yeah. Most of the people at the ballpark never saw him play. Mm-hmm. But they know the legend, they know the history, they know his presence, 
And he was just so well admired and how, as I mentioned earlier, how he carried himself. So, you know, it's one of those things that to have your name mentioned with those individuals is quite a statement. And uh, I couldn't agree with Lou Jr. more on this. You think about the Red Jackets, uh, the Cardinal Hall of Famers, one of whom, of course, is Whitey Herzog. And Whitey Herzog said that he thought that there were two Hall of Famers who were underrated. One, Yogi Berra, because people first think of him for his one-liners. And second, Lou Brock, because everyone thinks about his stolen bases. And he points, Whitey points to, his over 3,000 hits and his World Series numbers. A 2-2 pitch. Breaking ball. Hit off the pitcher. To the third baseman. No play. Base hit. 3,000 for Lou Brock. He's a the man, Jack. He's knocked down on the pitch before, and then he turns around and hits a line drive off the pitch and knocks him down. And, you know, I heard Whitey say that. I think that people missed the boat on Yogi. Nobody bothered looking at the world championship teams he was mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. You know, again, we go back to big-time performers, and Lou was in that category. And, you know, I guess in, in, in today's game, Hall of Famers sometimes do a little bit more campaigning for the opportunity. I mean, there's more exposure and more opportunities. You know, Lou and, and Yogi, that's interesting. They're both a mild man, quiet guys. But when they were in a room, they could light up a room with their personality. And it was a genuine concern that they would have about issues and people that made them people that everybody liked being around. And the way Lou Brock treated people, you hear the eulogies. And you, I, I think Adam Wainwright told the story of his very first spring training as a Cardinal. He's in spring training. He's a rookie. And Lou Brock, of all people, comes up to Adam Wainwright with a baseball asking for Adam Wainwright's autograph. And Adam goes, wait a minute, this really needs to be the other way around. And Lou Brock says, you are going to be special, and I want your autograph. And, he, and Adam Wainwright said that was just the, one of the sweetest things that ever happened to him, as just going to, going to his first big league camp. Yeah, no, that's the way Lou was. Lou knew about you before you knew about him. He did his homework, and he'd go around and introduce himself. And, you know, Tony was big on, Tony LaRusso was big on these young players. And he'd tell them in spring training, hey, if you don't go introduce yourself to these Hall of Famers, then you've missed out. Yeah. And some guys were a little gun-shy, and the ones who were gun-shy, Lou would go find them and introduce himself. And, you know, he wouldn't tell them, hey, you got to do this or you got to do that. He, he would just, you know, ask questions about them. And You know, a lot of times when you're struggling, somebody can ask you some questions, and you can answer your own question and figure out why you're struggling. And that's what Lou was good at, especially when it came to hitting. Lou tells a story. And it's interesting with when he got traded, he, he was a big fan of Stan Musial. So Stan standing around one day. And so, you know, Lou, as I mentioned, Lou was kind of an analytic guy. He he liked to give the, the technical approach to things. So he goes to Stan and asks him about how to hit a curveball. So I'm having a problem hitting a curveball. So Stan says, Well, tell you what I do. Lou's, you know, he's listening with both ears. He said, Well, you know, get up in the box just a hair. I stay loose, keep my hands relaxed, and I wait on it just a little bit longer, and then I knock the you-know-what out of it. <laughs> and he walked away. <laughs> so, so, so Lou is waiting on this scientific answer, mm-hmm. and that's all he had. And so Lou was kind of that way, too. He just kept it simple. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, he, was, he, he was a fascinating person when it came to being able to diagnose a situation and mm-hmm. come up with a remedy. There's so many 
things about him as far as him being a person who paid attention to his teammates, and they obviously paid attention to him. Well, one more story, and then I'll let you go. I know you have a great story about Bob Gibson and Lou Brock. Yeah. So, one of my favorites. Cardinals out in San Diego. And uh, San Diego wasn't a very good team at the time. And Lou Brock is once again having a stolen base parade taking place. And so he steals a base in the seventh inning, and they got a big lead, which, you know, back then you, you didn't do. So for some reason, he gets in at bat in the ninth inning, and they drill him. Lou goes down to first, and uh, he's kind of grinning, right? First baseman comes over, you know. You know how first baseman stand and talk to the runner. And remember, the first base umpire is standing within proximity. And the first baseman says to Lou, he said, what are you laughing at? He just drilled you. And Lou just says, well, you guys forgot who we got pitching tomorrow. And he just kind of nodded his head, and he looked over, and there's Gibson standing in the dugout, just taking note, you know, because you know, that, that's his guy. And so uh, he just kind of takes a note and just, okay, all right, we're going to play that now, huh? So next day, Cardinals score a run in the first. Thanks to Louie, gets on steal second, you know, ends up with scoring. And um, as Bob is going out to the mound, Lee Wire was first base umpire last night. Now, today, he's the home plate umpire. Now, he heard the conversation at first base, so he knows he might have trouble today. So he goes out, way down the third baseline, San Diego dugouts on the visitors on the third base side. And he says to Bob, he says, Bob, if you start throwing a guy, it's going to cost you 50 bucks. He said, after last night, get ready, because I'm about to spend a lot of 50. And it was all because of them hitting Brock that he felt like he was going to settle this right off the bat. So he hit the first two guys. Third place hitter hit into a double play, and the cleanup guy struck out. Rumor has it that San Diego never threw at another Cardinal as long as Brock and Gibson mm. were in uniform. My gosh. So, I mean, the the stories are legendary about Lou and Bob and those guys and, and how close they were as teammates and how much fun they had. And uh, it's an incredible time. That I don't know if we'll ever get again. Yeah. And I'm just glad I was part of being around them. You know, Lou and I were good friends, and, you know, we shoot the breeze about this. As you mentioned earlier, I got one story. This is my last one. Please. We're at fantasy camp. And uh, this is a few years ago, and Lou was down. And so we were facing, uh, the team I was on, we were facing a guy who played college ball. He was a pitcher. And he was throwing a little dinky slider that nobody was able to square up. So I'm standing there with Lou, and so I'm about to go in the on-deck circle. He said, so what's what's your approach with this guy? I said, well, Lou, everybody's trying to pull him. He said, so you're thinking about going the other way, huh? And I said, well, I'm going to just try and drop the head down and see what happens. He said, I probably would do the same thing. Wow. Just like that. Wow. So, lo and behold, I hit a double down the right field line, <laughs> and I'm standing in second, and I'm like, Lou. <laughs> so, w- when the game is over, you know, Ozzie Smith, who's a, a great friend, he was like, well, how'd you do? And I said, well, don't worry about it. You know, I was raking like I always do. He said, no, what'd you do? And earlier, I, I had a walk-off RBI walk. And so he was giving me grief about it. So the next game, he said, well, what would you do? I said, well, I had a walk-off again. I had another, I had, you know, I was dealing. He said, yeah, right, okay. I said, do you believe Hall of Famers when they tell you something? He said, it depends on who it is, what Hall of Famer it is. I said, what about Lou? He said, oh, yeah, whatever. I said, Lou, get over here and tell the story. So Lou not only sets the table by 
the weather setting of the day, puffy clouds in the sky, the wind was blowing out the right field, and he's given us this this play-by-play description before he even step in the batter's box. Mm. He said Mike struts to the batter's box, digs a small hole in the back end of the batter's box, takes a couple of practice swings, digs in, looks pitch all the way into the catcher's glove, and then the next pitch he lines down the right field line, he rounds first, and he goes into second base with a stand-up double. And Ozzy looks at me, and I look at Lou, and I was like, damn, that was better than I, I didn't even think it was that good, but you know what, Lou? I'm going to have to carry you around. This is before you had cell phones where you could just have them recorded. Mm-hmm. I said, I may have to have you as a keychain for a while, man, because that's a great story you told. I'm glad I was in it. I mean, he was just <laughs> such a fun guy to be around, but we're going to miss him. Yeah. We're going to miss him at the ballpark. And, you know, he was doing everything he could. And I don't know if the, if your listeners knew, you know, Lou lost a leg yeah. about three years ago. Mm-hmm. And Lou made it his business to show up for opening day the next year. Mm. And that was one of the things he looked forward to, opening day. And, you know, we've seen him in spring training yeah. even after mm-hmm. the amputation. And, okay, this is the last story. And this has something to do with Yachty. Keep going. All right. So we're in spring training. The last spring training Lou was in. This was last year. And Lou and Yachty are sitting in the back, the little patio area where guys eat lunch at. So, you know, Yachty loves Lou. So I walked by and I said, hey, Lou, do you think you could steal on Yachty? And I said, hey, Yachty, you think you could throw out Lou? And they just kind of looked at each other and at the same time said, depends on who's pitching. <laughs> just like that. And they both started laughing. I've got this great photograph of them both laughing oh my God. about it. I mean, the mutual respect that they have for each other. So they pinned it on the picture. And it was the last great laugh I saw Lou have. And, and I gave the picture to Yachty. And, we, and he remembered it like it was yesterday. Oh but uh, that's the kind of guy he was. Uh, such a diplomat. Such a gentleman. And uh, we're all going to miss him. Well, Mike Claiborne, longtime broadcaster for the St. Louis Cardinals and wonderful storyteller, thank you for sharing your thoughts and memories of Lou Brock. John, always good to visit with you, sir, and let's do it again. I can't wait to see you this spring. Listen each week for a new episode. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. Life at the Ballpark is produced by Jim Governale. Project manager is Andrew Miller. I'm John Frost, sharing stories of Life at the Ballpark. <laughs>